All right. Good afternoon, everyone. I hope you enjoyed your delicious meal today, courtesy of Ruth's Chris. Um, as always, if you enjoy this meal, please show it tangibly. Thoughts and prayers are nice, but they don't pay the bills for the people in the back, so let's uh, show them some love and <clears throat> thank them for their hospitality by tipping what you're able. And <clears throat> we are going to jump back into Joshua chapter 6. <clears throat> now, Joshua chapter 5 last week, Israel was on the, uh, they're in the land, so they're no longer in the wilderness. They're no longer a wandering uh, group. They are in the land. And right before they set out to engage in the conquest of Canaan, Joshua had the encounter last week we saw with the angel of the Lord, the commander of the Lord's army. And Joshua talked about, you know, hey, whose side are you on? And the answer was basically, no, whose side are you on? Because this whole thing, this whole enterprise is God's reclaiming of the land for the promised covenant seed of Abraham. And that is, that is the theme that dominates the conquest. And it's a very particular land. And it's very particular people. He did not just say, hey, you're Abraham's offspring. Take whatever you want anywhere you go. No. There was promises that this particular land belonging to these particular people is the land that you'll be driving them out of. And the reason given throughout Scripture all the way up until now, remember we've studied Torah together for five years, <clears throat> the reason over and over was that the people in the land, the particular peoples, the time for their judgment had come. And Israel was to be the means by which they were to be driven out. And as we saw in our study of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, time and time again, the, the promise of I'm giving you this land was so that they could be God's covenant people in that land, but also because God's judgment on those people reached its full measure. In other words, the, the time had run out. And for over 400 years, God had allowed this judgment to go unpunished. He had overlooked the sins, the building uh, impurity, or not even impurity, that's not even the right word, iniquity. The building iniquity of these peoples to the point where now in the fullness of time, their judgment day had arrived, just like had happened for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah in the cities of the plains, just like it had happened for the earth during the time of Noah, just like will happen later when Israel's iniquity reaches its full measure and God sends in Babylon to do what Israel is doing now. So the, all of this shows God's not working on a tribal nationalistic mindset. He's working on a global mindset and he's working with fair scales, equal weights, equal measures, because this chapter that we're looking at today is going to be paralleled by next chapter that we'll see in three weeks. I'm going to be gone for two weeks starting next week, um, <clears throat> where he deals the same way to Israel to a, or a part of Israel as he did to the Canaanites. And it's because of covenant disobedience. And that's super important to remember, lest we think Joshua is a book about God giving Israel land merely at the expense of Gentiles. It's not the case. And even in this chapter, it's not the case. And it hasn't been the case since Israel came up out of Egypt as a mixed multitude. So I say all that because it's really, really important to keep in mind because this is where we're starting to get into the section of Joshua that troubles a lot of readers. And that's okay. We should be troubled when we read of things that seem to fly in the face of what we see in Jesus. 
And the accounts of this Jesus, Joshua, seem to be at odds with the commands given by our Jesus, Yeshua, in the New Testament. So what do we do with that? Um, the thing to keep in mind is, is Joshua in the New Testament, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus and Joshua are the same word. Those of you that may be new to this study, it's the same name. In Greek, Jesus, Jesus, both. Um, New Covenant Joshua, his commands seem to be all loving and peace and nonviolence, but Old Covenant Joshua in this section of the book is going to seem to be very violent. So what do we do with that? One of the things we realize is that Jesus never really seemed to show any problem with this. Uh, Jesus never seemed to show any problem with the Old Testament. He had problems with people adding to the Old Testament or getting away from the spirit of the Old Testament, but the text itself, Jesus never actually had any problems or spoke of it as anything other than God's revealed Word. So we have to keep that in mind as we're forming our opinion because if we claim to be followers of Jesus, we need to view Scripture the way He viewed Scripture. So we can't claim to be a follower of Jesus, a red-letter Christian, and yet doubt, speak badly of the Old Testament because already we're not following what Jesus did in that regard. So however this troubles us, we need to at least keep in mind it didn't trouble Him enough to speak on it at least. Um, but as we've seen previous throughout the study over the years, the language of the Old Testament and the language of battle accounts specifically is not always literal language. And this makes some people uncomfortable, but too bad. <laughs> we've seen example after example where the literal language of the text is not always literal, but rather it's hyperbolic or it's symbolic or it's figurative or it's um, theological language rather than precise language. So, for instance, when battles talk, when, when ancient Near East records of battles portray cities as being wholly destroyed, we left nothing alive, men, women, children, you know, that's language that doesn't always mean exactly what it says. It just means the city was overthrown. We beat them soundly. And we know that because even in the Bible, it'll talk about cities or places destroyed. We left nothing alive. No one that breathes was remained alive. Yet in the very next book of the Bible, Judges, it talks about the remaining people of the land, those who were left there and not driven out, were a thorn in Israel's side. So the Bible itself will say they were utterly destroyed, nothing left alive. And in the very next section, it'll say, now the ones who survived went on to da-da-da-da-da. So it's not like you're not taking the Bible seriously if you say don't read it literally. No, we don't read it literally. We read it literarily. And part of literary feature in the Old Testament, especially in conquest narratives, is hyperbole. Hyperbole is what we call exaggeration. Not for the sake of deceiving, but for the sake of embellishing or holding up the theological importance of something or to shock or to get the attention of the readers. Jesus does this so much in the New Testament, it shouldn't be a problem for us. Jesus uses hyperbole all the time. If anybody sins, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If anybody would come after me and be my disciple, he must hate his mother and his father. We don't take that literally. Four times in the New Testament we read, greet one another with a holy kiss. None of you in here have kissed me. You all said, hey, but you haven't kissed me. I don't just condemn you for it. I thank you for it. <laughs> uh, the point is, 
that we don't even in the New Testament take everything literally. So this is you have to be aware of this because folk theology will get you thinking, oh, we just read it literally. God said it. That settles it. I believe it. No. That's why we do this study. This is literature. It's divine literature. It's inspired literature. I believe it's infallible. I believe it's inerrant. I believe it's authoritative. Whatever word you want to use to describe this literature from all the other types of literature in the world that humans came up with, but it is still literature. And so we need to be careful that we read it according to the way literature of the time in the different ages throughout Scripture was read. And literature of this time, the second millennium, ancient Near East, we have other examples of literature from this time. So we know kind of how these topics were approached by the peoples of this world. And we know that God uses literary devices. He He uses pagan poets in the New Testament that Paul will cite to make his point. He uses Egyptian wisdom literature in the book of Proverbs sometimes where, he, where Proverbs are literally taken almost word for word from Egyptian wisdom literature because all, all wisdom is God's wisdom. All truth is God's truth. God will use things of the world to prove His points theologically. And He will use conquest accounts, norms of writing, the way people communicated. So in those accounts and in those ways of communicating, just think of just a way to keep this in your mind. In the Bible, all doesn't always mean all. All doesn't always mean all. We read in Genesis, there was a famine in all the earth, so all the earth came to Joseph to buy grain. And we talked about, no, Eskimos didn't paddle down from Greenland to buy grain that they've never even heard of or eaten from Joseph. Aborigines didn't get in canoes and make the trip from Australia all the way to... No, what it meant was, in all the world of this story, from all over... People, it's just a way we do it all the time. I just did it. I said all the time. That's hyperbole. That's exaggeration. That's part of our language. So just be aware of that as we go into these narratives of conquest because you're going to have well-meaning or not so well-meaning people holding these up and saying, what do you do with this? The Bible commands genocide. The Bible teaches you know, that God destroyed little babies and innocent people. And you have to go, whoa, 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 wait a minute now. What are we reading? What are we reading? That's the question to keep in mind. So, that being said, let's read about this first of the battles in the Promised Land. Now, Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. Right here, this gives us a clue of what's happening. We've already met Jericho in the story with Rahab. Jericho was not a town. It was not a village. It was not a city. It was a fortification. It was a garrison. It was a, a, an impregnable, 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 however you say that word, fortress. It was a walled military installation. It was right there at the crossing of the Jordan, and there's a north-south, and there's an east-west uh, travel areas, and it was, it was, this is a military place. And so there were places, it's a center of either commerce, military, trade. It's not like a normal village. And when they heard about Israel, as we saw in the Rahab story, they close the gates. They board it up. They get ready for a siege. And that's exactly what's going to happen. They're going to be sieged. This is warfare imagery. So, were there little babies running around throwing rocks and playing and you know knitting and coloring with crayons and all this stuff? And no! No, this is a military outpost, military installation. So when we're reading that, keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. Otherwise, you get reading just certain English translations make you think they just call it a city 
and they don't differentiate between an ancient Near East city and a modern city. So our mind just reads what we know of a city into the account, and we just imagine, you know, Mayberry, and Israel coming into Mayberry and just slaughtering left and right, and little Opie Taylor running for his life, and all this stuff. That's so far removed from what's going on. So keep in mind, this is a fortified, closed up garrison installation military event taking place. So no one went out, no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horn in front of the ark. That word for ram's horn, trumpets of ram's horn, that word is yovo. And it's the word, it is the word that's translated or transliterated jubilee. Um, these were the horns that were blown at Jubilee. And we, those of you that were here for Leviticus, you remember Jubilee. After these seven sevens, then the horn of Jubilee, and it was like a, you know, re, redistributing the land back to its rightful owner. So there are echoes and elements of Jubilee in this military engagement because this land in Jericho is going back from the owners that it had been occupied by, the Canaanites, to its true owner, who's God Himself. And this will be God's city. We'll see that. It's not going to be an Israelite city. It's specifically going to be God's city. And we'll see what that means. But there's, there's, there's resonances of the Jubilee, including these taking of these horns. So don't think of trumpets or trombones, you know, like brass horns. These are, these are the curled ram's horns. So on the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout. And that shout, the word is a war cry. So not just like, hey, but like a, a, a battle cry or a cry for war. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up, every man straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and he said to them, take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the people, advance, march around the city with the armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward blowing their trumpets. And the Ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the Ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding, but Joshua had commanded the people, do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout, then you shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. Then the people returned to camp and spent the night there. So now this first day of this siege, a seven-day siege, and that's what it is. It's the terminology of ancient Near East warfare. You would surround a city physically, prevent anybody from coming in or going out until the people were starving to death inside finally surrendered. That's how you take a city. Its walls are impregnable. Well, this is a siege, but it's a, it, this is a siege because God's doing the fighting. God's going to be the one taking the city. So this is a symbolic siege. This is a liturgical siege. They do encircle the city. The word that translated in uh, NIV says march around. It's the word encircle. And so it does mean, you know, walk in a circle around, but it's also a word that means encircle, like surround something. And that's what Israel's doing theologically or symbolically in this. 
God's presence. Remember, the ark is His throne. It's His chariot. It's His locus of being. The ark is encircling the city. Jericho is being surrounded by the holiness of God. And not the people, not the war cry, not the intimidation or any of that. It's just these, this, the ark. Everybody else is in the camp. Right? So this is not your typical siege because this is not your typical battle because God is not your typical God. And so the city, this first day, just silent, these horns blowing, presence of this box, this ark, encircling the city and then going back to camp. And what that must have done to the soldiers in Jericho who are used to being holed up with an army laying siege, now they're watching this happen. So then, verse 12, Joshua got up early next morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days, just building the anticipation, the army inside waiting. When's the battle going to start? When are they going to start shooting stuff and throwing stuff, launching stuff at us or trying to scale the walls? And it's just this trumpets, Jubilee trumpets, and the Ark of the Covenant encircling the city. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak, so they got up earlier this day, and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. This is the Sabbath day. This is the day you normally would rest. Well, it's a Sabbath day of worship. And God's, God's going to bring about rest in, in a minute. We're going to see when Rahab and her family are going to experience rest. But it's going to come uh, through God working on this Sabbath day, this holy day. They circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest shout, sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, shout or raise the war cry, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are, and NIV says, to be devoted to the Lord. Now, we've talked about this term before. That's a verb. And it's um, harem is the word. H-E-R-E-M or C-H-E-R-E-M. Harem. And what harem is, is devoting something to God entirely, removing it from the human sphere of use. That's what harem means. And it was practiced by all of the cultures, or a lot of the cultures at least in this time, around Israel. This is not an Israelite invention. There's the Merneptha Stele, where an Egyptian king talks about destroying a city and devoting it to the God, using this terminology. And other examples where uh, uh, when battles were won, captives or prisoners or people or armies or soldiers or, or enemies or their treasures or their animals or whatever, were devoted to the gods who brought about victory. So this is a concept that is not unfamiliar to the Hebrew mind, even though it's unfamiliar to us today. And so that's what's happening. This is harem. This is everything in Jericho. All of the military, this military installation, everything in it is to be devoted to God. This is, Jericho is the first fruits of the whole rest of the conquest. So like the whole burnt offering that we read about in Leviticus, this is the part that's entirely dedicated to God, entirely given out of the realm of human use over to the realm of only use by God Himself. And if it's, if it's living, then it's devoted, burned up in fire like a sacrifice, like a whole burnt offering. And this is the type of warfare. Again, we're uncomfortable with it because we don't do war that way. And we shouldn't do war that way um, in a modern age. We're not a theocracy. We don't have a God commanding through a prophet and any of that stuff. But we do have to face the fact that that was the reality of warfare in the ancient Near East, and it was an expected part of it. This is why people would flee when armies were approaching unless they were going to stay and fight. 
Those who didn't flee were the ones who stayed to fight. And that's what we have here in Jericho. So, uh, the city all that is in it are to be cherem to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from all the cherem. NIV says devoted things. It's the same word. Keep away from all the cherem so that you will not bring about your own cherem, your own destruction, by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel become cherem and bring trouble on it. So I've kept the word in all of that. How your translations handle it is different because we don't have in English one word for cherem. But it's used throughout this verse. Say God's saying, everything in Jericho is going to be cherem. So don't take any of that cherem or you will become cherem. That's, that's the, what's going on here. We're going to see in the next chapter what that looks like when it happens. So that's the warning. But all the silver and gold, all the articles of bronze and iron are to be sacred to the Lord and must go into His treasury. So they can't even use the stuff that can't be burned up. Everything that's flammable burn. Everything that's inflammable goes to God in the sanctuary. No human can keep any of this stuff. That's what harem means. It's removed from the use of human uh, everyday life. When the trumpet sounded... So that's what he commands them to do. When the trumpet sounded, the people shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave the loud war cry, the wall collapsed. Every man charged straight in. They took the city. They devoted the city. They haremed the city to Yahweh with the sword and put to death with the sword every living thing in it. Men, women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Now I just said, they, every, everything. Men, women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought Rahab her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. So it just said everyone young and old was killed. And then it says, now go in and get Rahab and all who are with her. And it said young and old, her father. and her... So again, this is just showing you that the language is hyperbolic. The language is, 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 is symbolic, theological, not to be pressed literally. And that helps when we start to get uncomfortable with God. How can you command killing of little kids? Well, the text doesn't say that. It doesn't have that if we read it in its literary way that it was written. So... <clears throat> Rahab was spared and her family, they brought out her entire family. And NIV says put them, but that word put is nuach. It's the word for rest, to give rest. That's the name, where the name Noah comes from, um, which we saw means rest. Bring them out and let them rest. Give them rest. Give them, they enter into this thing that God wants His people to enter into, which is the rest. And so Rahab, not just Rahab, all her family, everybody who had Rahab's outlook on this entire situation is saved. And that's what delineates Canaanite from Israelite. Israelite recognizes Yahweh God and says, I'm on that side. Canaanite sees Yahweh God and says, I'm against that. That's what makes the distinction. So all who come to, and read, read uh, Joshua commentaries and you'll see a number of commentators pointing out, the Old Testament theme is if you turn to Yahweh, you enter into the people of Yahweh. You cease to be a Canaanite. And so the people that don't, the people that are obstinate, the people that refuse, or the people that are Israelite but act like Canaanites, 
are the ones who experience the judgment that the Canaanites experience. And so that's what we have. They burn the whole city, everything in it, but they put the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house, the tabernacle. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. Now this is a clue, perhaps, to when Joshua was written, is if she's still alive to this day. Or, to be fair, the text could just mean her family still lives among Israel to this day. Because later the prophets will say that about David long after actual David is dead. And they'll talk about meaning the line of. So this could either mean Rahab's still alive, which means this was written in the lifetime of Rahab, or it could mean it was written years later, but her line, her family, still lives among Israel to this day. We know that they do because she's included in the genealogy of David and ultimately the genealogy of Jesus. The pagan Gentile prostitute brings forth the Messiah from her line. It's fascinating. It's right here in the book of Joshua at the beginning of the conquest, which is supposed to be nationalistic, ethnocentric, all these terms that critics throw against it. And you have a pagan, Gentile, Canaanite prostitute and her entire family being given rest among Israel for generations to come. That's the judgment of God. It's always two-sided coin. Judgment for those who are obstinate, Grace and mercy for those who turn to God. That's what we see in the Old Testament. We see it with Rahab. We see it with Ruth. We see it with Naaman. We see it with, with all of these people throughout Scripture. So we have to, have to, have to keep that in mind. So important. So then, the city's been raised. It's been destroyed. It's been burned to the ground. At that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath. Cursed before the Lord is the man who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son will he lay its foundations, and at the cost of his youngest will he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. So what's happening here is Jericho has been determined to be cherem. It's off limits. It's out of the realm of human use. It cannot be utilized anymore. And so Joshua, in order to make this clear, pronounces this curse over the city. Basically, hey, anybody that's going to try to rebuild this, to re Now, Jericho had been around. It's the oldest wall, uh, continuous... It's the oldest settled city in the world. I mean, it goes back 8,000 B.C. You know, this is, this is 1,400 B.C. So, it's thousands of... I mean, Jericho is ancient. And it's been built, rebuilt, built, rebuilt. That's why archaeology around Jericho is kind of a mess. People give different dates for different attacks and different this and that. And it's just, it's hard to make any real firm pronouncements about Jericho because it's been around for so long up until this time. And so what Joshua is saying to this is no more. It's done. This is this as the figurehead of the entry into Canaan. This place is off limits and is going to stand as a memorial to God and us entering into the land. So he pronounces this curse on it. And it actually happened. First Kings 16, a guy named Chael um, the Bethlehemite builds, rebuild, tries to rebuild Jericho, and, and his firstborn and his youngest die in the process. Um, but this is, this is how the, the entry of, into Canaan, verse 27, so the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land, or his renown. 
Jericho was a big deal. Jericho, it might not have been a huge city geography-wise, because it was a military garrison. So, you know, a couple of football fields in size is what we're thinking. Um, at, at most, maybe think of like Bank of America Stadium or something. You know, like you could walk around it in seven times in a day. Um, so it's not like a city, like city limits like we think. But it wasn't the biggest in the area, but it was, it was the most impregnable. It was the strongest. It was kind of the symbol of, you know, like the Pentagon in Washington. That's the symbol of American military might. It's not the biggest building. You know, the Pentagon's not the biggest building. It's, it, there's bigger, there's more impressive structures, but it symbolizes the might of America, right? So that's kind of Jericho symbolizing the might of Canaan. And God, what God's done for Israel through to bring this about, stopping the waters of the Jordan River all the way upstream 15 miles, you know, basically putting a halt to Baal's weather cycle and, and seasonal fertility so that His people could come through. Then putting siege to Jericho, but not a military siege, but a godly, the army, the Lord of the commander of the Lord's army were the one who were circling the city. The angels were the ones who were encircled around the city, so to speak. And then the people just marching in obedience. And all they do is what God says. Shout. And then the city wall falls down. The wall that was just massive. I mean, up to 30 feet high. And just this impregnable fortress in the ancient world collapses straight down so that the people can go in and take it. So this whole account, it's, it's, it's packaged like ancient Near East warfare. But when you actually read it, it's completely opposite of ancient Near East warfare. And that's so like God in Scripture of taking the things of the world and saying, let me tell you how it really should be. And, and, and it being you know, similar but dissimilar in so many ways. But here we have the beginning of the conquest and, and everything's going great. So Jericho is the prototype. Jericho is how it should be always when they go into the land. So next they're going to move on to another place called Ai. We're going to see what happens when Israel does not do what they did at Jericho. And the results could not be more opposite. Um, but for that, you're going to have to wait. Because we're out of time now. I leave for India on Sunday. I appreciate your prayers for safety, for health, and uh, for our, our, our teaching ministry for pastors over there. Then I'll be back two weeks. So next week, my friend Chris Thayer is going to come and he's going to speak. And then the week after that, we got right here. Paul's going to speak, our homegrown. Uh, so you guys will be in good hands while I'm gone. And then three weeks, I'll be back. We'll pick back up with this. So have a great week, everybody. Thanks a lot.